0: This morning we began a new sermon series, Spirituality for the Real World, which is of course the only one there is, and it's where we live. James is a very, very practical book, and so for the next few weeks we'll be making our way through the book of James. This morning we start with chapter one beginning at verse two. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, Consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In his book, Everything is Spiritual, Rob Bell tells a story, an old story, a quest story. It's about a woman who's living in a village, and who is trying to figure out who she is. What life is all about. Who am I? And so she goes on a quest. With a pack on her back, she leaves the village and climbs a mountain where fairly high up in a cave is a guru, and she approaches and says, who am I? And the guru says, no, that, that is above me. That question is above me. You will have to go higher. And she journeys higher, and there is a yogi living in a cave, and she approaches and says, Who am I? And the yogi says, The question is above me. You will have to go to the top. And at the pinnacle is the wisest woman of them all. And so the woman takes off her pack, she makes her way into the cave, and she says, Who am I? And the wise woman pauses and arches an eyebrow and says, who's asking? And Bell says that the first time he read that, he chuckled, and just like you, I did too. It's cute, it's clever, but there's a truth there, that if on this journey of self-discovery, we're going to figure it out, we're probably going to have to start with some kind of self-examination, asking ourselves, who am I? What is this thing about? I've told you before that I came to faith as a freshman in college, spring semester. A year later, summer between sophomore and junior, I was trying to figure it out. And I don't just mean, what's my major going to be? What am I going to do for a living? I mean, this thing called Christianity. I'd thrown my lot in with this. What did I do? What had I gotten myself into? I hadn't figured it out. Here's a way to think about it. If you join a book club, there's a pretty good chance they're going to expect you to read something and when you come together to talk about it, or at least fake it that you've read it, right? Or if you join a bowling league, every Tuesday they're going to expect you to show up, do the best you can, and every once in a while you should be the one to buy the beer. But what if you join a church? What then? What have you gotten yourself into in this this movement of God that Jesus was a part of? What then? What then? I got my first little glimmer of an answer with a pack on my back climbing a mountain. I didn't go looking for a guru or a yogi or the wise woman. It was that summer with a bunch of college kids from the church where I had joined. I think it was seven, maybe eight days in the mountains of New Mexico, and someone had decided that while we hiked, we would memorize the book of James. That was not my idea. <clears throat> but it was very enlightening and, and pretty much life-changing. We had these little pocket-sized New Testaments. They were dog-eared to the book of James, and while we walked the trail, someone would say, okay, I, I'm looking at it, go for it, and you'd start at 1-1 and go as far as you could. Years later, it occurs to me, this is a great metaphor, not just for the journey of life, but that that's what James is all about. James is practical wisdom for the journey. He uses a bunch of different words in Greek and in English, for that matter, like maturity and perfection and reaching and and not uh, focused on too many things, single minded. He uses all these words. But here's what I think is maybe the best translation of them all He's interested in us reaching our potential. Reaching our potential. So maybe in your job, you say, how can I do the best that I can at my job? Or maybe you're a half marathoner. How can I reach my potential? Or how can my golf game reach its potential? James says, what about in the life of faith? How does one reach potential? So what he does throughout the book is, well, it looks like he gives commands, because actually he uses imperatives over and over, which you remember in English you're supposed to end imperatives with an exclamation point. He's got imperatives everywhere. But there are shades of imperatives in Greek, and what he's really doing is giving advice. He's not pointing a finger at you, he's giving advice. This is kind of a New Testament book of Proverbs in a way. Or here's the way I think about it. One of my dear friends, a golf buddy named Lynn, who lives in Des Moines, he's 10, 11 years older than me, very wise, a retired businessman, just full of wisdom. And so whenever something comes up, I will talk to Lynn, and there'll be give and take, but I'm always waiting for this one phrase. This is when I really listen, when he says, I can't tell you what to do, but if it were me, oh, that's what I want to know, if it were me, if it were me, that." is the book of James. He wants to say, if it were me, and he starts with trials. Trials, you know, when when you fly home from Italy and your luggage is three days still not back. That's a trial. And he uses this little word, when I memorized it on that trail in New Mexico, it was various, or in this translation, any kind. That one word in Greek, you know what he's trying to say? There's this range of trials. You know, there's lost luggage, and there's Ukraine. And everything in there is in that range. When we were in Italy, outside of Florence, my wife and I, along with Randy and Cindy Irie, booked an excursion out into the Tuscan countryside. We went to two vineyards to do some tastings, they had some nice meats and cheeses and wines, and it was great. We got back on the bus with the 40 or so folks, headed back into Florence, come to a stop, traffic. Not the kind where you're going to inch along, it's the kind where you put it in park. One hour. We're like, what is going on? We're in the back of the line, that's a trial. But at the front of the line, someone trying to survive. Their car had basically exploded. James says, there is this incredible variety of trials and the way you should respond is with joy. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Now it's it's fair to note that he doesn't say trials are a joy. He doesn't say that. He says you should consider it a joy. That's really hard to do. I mean, is this, is he a masochist or something? Like, is he the kind of person who puts his hand over an open flame, see how long he can keep it there before his flesh burns up or something? I don't think so. Because he gives us the reason he says it. He knows this is almost impossible to do. But the reason is because it can help us reach our potential. Responding, to trials with joy can grow us because the alternative is turning bitter. When we went to one of those vineyards, I'd remembered this from years ago, but I got a refresher. If you've been to Napa or Sonoma or other places, the vineyards have irrigation systems. Of course they do. That's how you grow crops, but not in Italy. No irrigation. And you ask them, well, now, how does it work? Well, there's this thing called rain, and it rains, and and if it doesn't rain, it doesn't rain. But it's against the law, not just to conserve water either. And the soil is rocky. It is not great soil. But what they have decided is that the grapes that struggle taste the best. Isn't that something? Why would we regard it as a joy Because if we do, it can help us reach our potential. But we have to be so careful here. God is not up on a mountain in a cave throwing tornadoes at the Midwest or hurricanes to the Gulf. God is not looking down on this couple who's just had their first child and has, oh, you know, maybe if we send a heart issue for this baby, that'll help them grow. No, that is not God. Trials come our way, but how we respond can help us grow in our faith in God. (laughs) There there is one other word in this text worth noting, and my hunch is, if we guessed, it might take us a while to come up with it. It's a little word. It's the pronoun you. When you encounter various trials, except it's plural, it's y'all. He says, y'all, we don't encounter problems on our own. In fact, you know the problem with those posters that say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade or if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. The problem is not the wisdom of the saying. It's pretty much true, but it's the singular. It's the individualized approach. We don't face our trials alone. Years ago, sociologist Robert Putnam, he observed that more people than ever in the United States are taking up bowling, but leagues are at an all-time low. And he called it the scandal of bowling alone. We don't face trials alone. When that couple has the baby with a heart issue, we respond. And even in the litany that we said to Carl and Denise, we promise to be there for them, and they are promising to be there for us. And if we do, if we encounter these trials with joy, we can grow. Now, I don't know how many of you do this when you come to church, but some some folks, I'm one of them, when I worship, I look ahead and say, well, now what's the scripture? What's the hymn? And when I sing a hymn, I always peek at the bottom. Who wrote this? When was it written? Who did... Our closing hymn today just happens to be by a fellow by the name of Beethoven. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was pretty good, Beethoven. I knew the story behind this. It's adapted from the final movement of his ninth symphony, but I'd forgotten the details. So here it is, when Beethoven was a teenager, he went to the University of Bonn to hear a lecture that's what most of us do, right, when we're teenagers. And it was on the poetry of Friedrich Schiller. The poetry of Schiller became his most treasured book his entire life. He carried it with him. And his favorite poem was called Ode to Joy. And he decided as a teenager that he would someday compose a piece that would set these words to music. Nobody had ever done that in the history of classical music. Classical music was music. There were no lyrics, but he did it. But it was not easy. I mean, talk about trials. The Napoleonic Wars broke out. His own life, well, you know, he went deaf. By the time he was 40, he couldn't hear He had a relationship that went sour. One of his brothers died. He contracted some mysterious illness and was bedridden for a year. He was falsely accused of something and put in jail. And even when the premiere finally happened of the Ninth Symphony, the royal party had gone all the way to the summer, you know, cottages and and castles. and, And so he was kind of spurned. And even on the night when he was to premiere it, Things didn't go so well. Well, for starters, they said to the orchestra, pay no attention to him when he waves his arms. He can't hear. He doesn't know what's going on. And this was very unusual for the composer to conduct, but he insisted. And so he stood there and he waved his arms and the magic happened. If you've not heard it, go home and Google Ninth Symphony Final Movement Leonard Bernstein conducting. It will blow you away. It is just sheer joy born out of trial. But he didn't know it. He didn't know what had happened. I mean, he's still waving his arms. And a friend tapped him and turned him around to see how it had touched people. Helen Keller learned about music listening to the ninth with her hand on the speaker. She got it. Isn't that something? When the the students in, in Tiananmen Square protested, they blasted Beethoven's Ninth over the speakers. And just a few months ago, before Russia invaded, the National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine played Beethoven's Ninth. This is not easy to do, but if it were me, I would look for the joy in whatever you are facing. Just keep looking for the joy.